Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. massive but i do want to say straight out the gate uh, i'm here with jesse malin um thank you for sharing the podcast sharing the word on the uh serious xm show that oh, you yeah, were doing my friend hosting, jake uh, from new york text yeah, me and was, you just got a shout out from jesse i was hosting a uh, little steven's underground garage great rock and roll show it's too bad it's not over here i don't know if you can get it online but... i don't think you can get anything serious over here no it's yeah annoying. i thought you could download the app but i don't know but i i fill in once in a while i'm not i mean i like to dj it's fun or whatever and there's such a, a great program so i fill in for different djs when they go on vacation so i did five days right before this tour began and uh I guess a Blondie track came up in the listing. You right, get to right. pick some of your songs, and then others are handpicked by little Steven himself, who has great taste, and uh, his colleagues and all. So, you know, if a song comes up that I didn't pick but I like, I'll blabber on about it. And, uh, yeah, I said, wow, Blondie. I start talking about maybe Mike Chapman, the producer, and that record. And then I see, yeah, I just heard a great interview with Clem Burke, which I happened to stumble upon looking to see some Blondie dates because – thought you know the new record is so good so I thought, good you know i want to see them this summer and maybe we'll cross paths whenever i'm going on tour i always like to see who's playing on an yeah, off of day because i can't get enough of this music and i came across your podcast and, and i was like wait and then it all linked back that we had spoken and done something before about yeah, yeah. the jam so small world but it was a great call i mean a great um conversation you have a clem because you know that guy's such a deep music guy a sick amazing drummer has a style that's unreal and, and i've got to know him over the years and play with him but, you know, to hear the drummer who has been through so much in that backseat and seen so much 
you know, get his perspective. That was cool. It's a unique perspective, isn't it? Because I think at the center of that band is Debbie and Chris, and he's obviously at that vantage point where he can sort of maybe more objectively read the situations for what they are, if that makes sense. Yeah. And he's a real rock and roll guy, a real rocker, you know. Well, his list of credentials amazed me when I was going through in the lead up to the chat from like, you know, Dylan to Springsteen to... The I don't think he mentioned Iggy in that too, and he no. did. Um, there's that Target video of that tour. I think it's around Party, or it's like in the, maybe '81. I think they might open for the Stones in Detroit or something, and whatever. I don't know. Clem <laughs> can tell you more. What do I know? Well, I want to thank you though, because you know when you, when you have an artist on and they share it, obviously that is hugely helpful. But when an artist sort of shares another artist episode, that's like the ultimate seal of approval, mm-hmm. and it obviously, uh, you know, costs you nothing to say but meant a lot to me cool. so well, it was my pleasure was thank you very much jesse from the heart <laughs> let's talk about yesterday straight in because um and there's been some stuff going on in the punk news i don't know whether you've seen it yet we'll get to it in a bit with some of the the warp tour drama that's Other been happening I know, yeah, um yeah. what i loved about yesterday was that there was three generations really of music fans from sort of people i guess who grew up listening to the stranglers the damn stiff little fingers degeneration bands like that then there was kind of the 90s generation, my generation, Rancid, Green Day. And then, of course, you've got all the younger fans that got into Green Day later on and some of the younger bands like Billy Joe's son that was there. And, and Gogol, ev- which aren't that old, Gogol, Bordello, yeah, yeah, or yeah. Hives are relatively you know, band from the 2000s. I well, think. yeah, so maybe almost like four generations then. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of new bands like Swimmers, like you were saying, and uh, Public Access and Beach Slang. And, yeah. But what was cool was that all the sort of different age groups of people were sort of harmoniously just enjoying it together and there was a real sense of community and that was a really special thing and it takes quite a unique band to obviously top a bill like that and bring all those different groups together and those different fans together and obviously full kudos has to go to green day for that guys yeah they're on the right team the right side and they've had success and they've deserved it and they've worked so hard for it but to put together a bill take over the park you know, in the middle of summer, 70,000 people, um, you know, it's pretty intense times here in England and London and, you know, have bands that are kind of out there and outspoken. It was uh, it was great. And it was so many friends. I forgot. I felt like I was like in New York or something or in America. You know, it was like a mix. I mean, it was great hanging out with the damned. One of the highlights was um, Rat Scabies, who's not drumming with them now. But he was, was there, there, right? Yeah, yeah. We hung. And then I think him and the singer Dave Anian spoke. But yeah, I mean, I've toured with Green Day before. Um, this was my first time ever in England was with them in 98. We played the Brixton Academy, toured all over the continent. But, you know, to, and I've opened for them as a solo artist as with my band in, uh, in Cleveland and in New York. But to come over and do this. And we were playing in the daytime and, you know, at an hour that I'm not normally even up yet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In real life or I tried to get into this business so I could not have to wake up. But um, there were people there, a lot of people. I was surprised that people came out early and got their, their day's worth and that we didn't just play to the trees and the grass, that it was a good crowd. And the sound was really cool. And just everybody hanging out, the different artists checking each other out and going through the crowd. I really like the T-shirt watching. I do that a lot from the stage at my gig, especially over here. It's the, I feel like my fans have the coolest t-shirts when they come out you know you'll see everything from a lamf to a replacement shirt to a hold steady or a poke shirt but um going through the crowd people were super cool you know all i think the old-time punk people you know they take it real serious it's a big part of their culture here you see guys that you could imagine you know were at shows at the stranglers you know Mm -hmm. years ago whatever 
I once went to a specials gig on the East End at uh, Troxy or something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. a few years yeah. ago at the top of a tour and watching all these guys in Fred Perry shirts just skank these big guys, you know, with shaved heads going crazy, you know, 50, 60 years old, whatever. Um, it was a different experience than seeing it back in the States, so. But I always like playing over here. I like the audiences. They come early. They they buy stuff. They sing along. They know the words. They come from my support acts. Whenever I bring somebody over on this tour, I have Matthew Ryan supporting me, and you know people uh, generally come out and, and get you know get the whole experience. They don't just sit off at home and come down just for the headliner and you know pop out. So. So you got that sense yourself as well, walking around yesterday, that everybody was sort of in it together and there wasn't any generational yeah. divides. No, or... and people, just young kids that are just getting into it. And I think Green Day, you know, not only they're an aware political, social class, you know, kind of a punk rock band at heart, but they also reach people in a mainstream way, the way, you know, Bob Dylan or the Beatles or John Lennon or whatever, you know, can reach out Bob Marley and take these pop songs, but also there's something to say with it, which is... Uh, a great use and you see young kids with their family young kids alone you know you see people that probably saw them on their first tour just the whole combination is cool to see that and i saw that a lot with rancid in the states that there's people that you know grew up with them and uh and even in my shows too it's funny i've seen people like you know come with their kids and now their kids are grown up or you know you stay in this long enough um what is that Kinks lyric in uh, Rock and Roll Cities? The girls get younger every year. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that line from Dazed and Confused, isn't it? Matthew McConaughey. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so let's talk, I mean, let's just go in on it then, if you don't mind, on the whole Dickies palaver. I'd love to know your thoughts because for me, I think the Warp Tour has become this sort of confused event. And obviously you book in bands that predominantly appeal to really young people. And then to put on the bill with these sort of, you know, very youth-orientated emo in many ways, people might want to call it bands, to have a kind of provocative, outspoken act like the Dickies on a bill like that is, do you think you perhaps run the risk of alienating? Offending somebody? Because it's, to me, I mean, don't go to a show that you know is going to, it's like going to an Andrew Dice Clay show and being offended. Do you know what I mean? It's well, like the Dickies, you, you know, I've known them, I guess, probably since I was 16 or something and Degeneration tour with them a lot. And I, I'm a big fan. I think they're a really super talented, underrated band. And But they're a funny, fun band and it's a goof. I mean, Leonard has a great sense of humor. He's highly intelligent and not only a talented singer and all, but like he does a bit where he comes out and he says, you know, uh, we are the Dickies and I'm Leonard and we love you so much we would like to go out we would like to go down on each and every one of you tonight but sorry we don't have the time and like it's all just a shtick that he does and uh maybe somebody had heard it i had heard that he was kind of set up that someone had heard the show previously and was offended had signs so the clip that you see from what i understand and even getting in touch with leonard um and just reaching out to him as a friend say hey you know i hope you're okay it was like kind of a setup and you only see in that video him going off, which is pretty intense. If you see that, I get it. I mean, I don't want to hear women being degraded, you know, with the C word or whatever. I guess I can say cunt on this. Uh, yeah. But, you know, he, like he said that where my mistake was, I think he wrote me and said, I, I said the wrong word. If I would have said asshole, it would have been this sexist thing. But they were calling him like a predatory old man, like, yeah. you know, ageist and, 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 you know, he's predatory. It's it's complete comedy the band is called dickies and uh he has a puppet that's a penis with balls named Stuart. and you know the, the whole bit has always been very funny and very smart and uh made to be a little provocative or offensive of you course, know like yeah. lenny bruce or like the pistols or 
And uh, so I think he got a bad rap. I think he got upset and he overreacted. And when you're in those situations and you're on those stages and you feel like, you know, maybe it isn't the perfect mix. But if the Warp Tour is about punk rock and I like Kevin and I you know, think they've broken a lot of great bands and people have had so much fun over the years, you know, they're probably putting the dickies on because they believe in the legacy and where it comes from. And punk rock isn't just some neat thing that fits into a hole at some summer camp or theme park or Disney thing so there's going to be that and people should think if they're taking their kids to a punk show that it isn't going to be all clean emo core stuff so maybe he you know flew off the handle but his thing is not that and i've lived you know on many tours and vans and traveled with them and he's an honorable great guy and is is actually very respectful of women and men and very open-minded and it's not some sexist you know creep that's going to do that i think uh he was pushed, and they knew, and they had these signs. So you only see one side of the story. But there is something to say. Like, I, I guess the, to repeat it is really just that punk is about freedom of speech and saying whatever. Obviously, you know, you don't want to have racist, sexist. It isn't so much fun, though I do have friends that like Screwdriver. <laughs> you know, they actually have a couple good songs. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the implications are for punk rock if people are sort of siding against him in such a way and saying, you know, there's no place in this scene for that kind of language and... You are, so I, because I think that bands like that, who are, I think, funny, and I've got, I think, a sense of humor that, you know, yeah. is on point with that. But it seems to me like nowadays, it's more encouraged to, like, call that out, which is good in many ways. It is good to call out things if they're evil or, do you know what I mean, manipulative or harmful. But I think to just call out something for being shocking and funny has sort of a dangerous implication for... Well, it's a censorship, you know? Yeah. I mean, treating people bad. I mean, I look at rock and roll or punk rock or whatever community, the music community, let's say. I look at that as a place where we got to stick together. It's us against them. We're outside of society. We're people that have come together because we love this. We have a passion. We might not fit into the norm, the mainstream, the cookie cutter, what you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to listen to. Um, we've dug deeper. You know, a lot of us have found things that are obscure and records that have changed our lives. And the message being freedom and individuality and expression. And sometimes there's things with jokes that are, you know, meant to shake people up and move them a certain way. And like I said, that wasn't, I don't think his point to, to degrade or make anybody feel bad. But they, I think, were offended and made him feel bad. And I think if you go too far into that, you know, you're going to have censorship like they tried to do with um, the PMRC in the 80s. You know, they came after the Dead Kennedys. They came after Jello Biafra for a poster, H.R. Geiger poster with Frank and Christ album because there was like these penises. You know, it's a part of the body. I think like somebody once said, well, if you're really uh, you know, believe in all this religion and everything and the body is so horrible, then you've you know, you got to blame the creator, the almighty God. You know, it's, it's the human body. It's There's not, nothing unnatural yeah, about it, Yeah, and it's right? nothing offensive. It was animals and dogs and cats, they don't get offended if you see a picture of somebody's penis, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, the dead Kennedys might have had a lot of things they were saying that were outspoken, but they, you know, they came down on that. And Ozzy Osbourne and Zappa and all these people, you know, Frank Zappa spoke out a lot in his day, rest in peace. I mean, there was a time when, um, and it still is, you know, I mean, there's warning stickers on records. And I get that, that at a certain age, maybe a kid isn't ready to hear um, you know, real graphic, crazy stuff, or even a, a crass record or a hip-hop record or whatever. I think there's a time when you grow into it. 
Um, but, you know, it's a certain kind of thing, a punk rock show. You're going out there. You saw Green Day yesterday. I don't know. I wasn't, I don't hear it like people hear it. Maybe he said the F word a few times. I don't, you know, I'm sure everybody said it that day. I probably did. It's just words. It's not out to, you know, you shouldn't be, words shouldn't be able to hurt people like that in such a sense. You have to have a sense of humor. It depends how it's used, I guess. It's like the N word. You know, the more uh, used to be, you know, it still can be degrading, a degrading word to, to black people if you, uh, you know, use the N word. But they've used it so much in, in their culture and their music where, you know, they've taken it and maybe, um, you know, taken the sense, I don't know. Reappropriate, so, yeah, it, just kind of where it doesn't have that power. They've taken it back and, and killed any kind of place. I mean, it's still racism and judgment. Yeah, it's never, never pretty. But um, I think if uh, you realize that words can be, like you said, reappropriate, just changed up and, and have a way to defend it by desensitizing it to a sense where you can, you know, laugh at it or spit it back. You know, because you must have seen some crazy shit at shows in the eighties and. I guess my question would be, do you think that a lot of bands then would be allowed to exist now in terms of things that they maybe said on stage or just like how violent some of the shows were? Yeah, I think, you know, political correctness is, there's a certain good thing about it. You know, when we got into anarchy and punk and peace and in the mid-80s, I, you know, was in heart attack and we were following a lot of, we've read a lot of stuff about what, you know, anarchy could be and we claimed to be anarchists that we started to judge everybody else and we became the hierarchy that we were fighting against. We would tell our friends, well, you have pornography in your house. How can you call yourself an anarchist? Throw it out. I had a friend that came up to me and said, you know, uh, Jesse, you know, he's in my anarchist collective, an older guy than me. Did it have a name? Um, no, no. we just get together and talk about how we're going to, you know, we go to demonstrations. Smash the yeah. and, but it was positive. It wasn't, you know, we weren't violent at all. It was more through, you know, peace and, and that kind of awakening, more of a mental, you know, change and, and, and activities, act, you know, being active, but uh, getting the message out. But, you know, he said to me, Jesse, you know, you're into all this music. You, uh, you know, you love those old rock bands from the 70s, Aerosmith, Zeppelin, you know, they're sexist. You know, you've got to get rid of those records. That's degrading women. So I sold the Aerosmith records. I sold the Zeppelin records on St. Mark's Place out on the street and, you know, bought some vegetarian curry or something and <laughs> that night or, you know, whatever. And then he said, well, Jesse, you know, you've got to get rid of the dead boys. And, you know, they're, they're, I need lunch. It's degrading yeah, yeah. women. And I was like, oh, all right. They're fun. And I sold that. Not the and dead then, boys. And then he's like, all right. <laughs> Iggy Pop, you know, Iggy Pop, it's, it's really not nice to women that what he sings, the way he sings. Not the Iggy. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so I sold the Iggy. And years later, you know, I bought all these records back because there's, there's an element of being able to see, you know, through things. I mean, there's been bands that have been sort of racist or there's been messages like came out, you know, with certain hip-hop artists and bands that I liked. And, you know, you like the music. Obviously, um, you don't want to support people that want bad for the world or speak badly out, out there. But I think um, sometimes it's the art and the artist, and sometimes there's got to be a sense of humor. I mean, I love the Rolling Stones, and, you know, they, they, uh, they've definitely walked the line more than anybody. They love black people, and they love black music, and they've embraced it more than anything. But some of the lyrics that they've had in their songs and got away with, where if it came out now, forget it. People would be like, oh, my God, you know, Brown Sugar and these songs, and you read the words, and you're like, you know, even Sweet Black Angel, which is... You know, so many tunes, but they they're coming from a certain place. So you they, you know, it's it's uh, an affection. And the same thing, I think, with Lou Reed. I think when I went to one of his uh, well, this main memorial in at the Apollo when he passed, and you know, they had doo-wop singers and a Tai Chi guy and Paul Simon and then Patti Smith and 
Anthony and and you know they said you know when when uh, Walk on the Wild Side came out and he said and the color girls go do 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 like people would be offended now and he said the black people at the time really loved that song and they got it that he wasn't you know making fun of them that you know he was on the right team but you know today if it was that politically correct you'd be like wait what is that part is this mocking you know it's just there's got to be some kind of style and sense of humor and and you got to be able to feel that there's a vibe that things aren't always just you know so cut and dry it must be hard for young bands now coming up that want to express sort of you know provocative ideas to kind of worry about backlash and then therefore maybe put them off doing it in the first place yeah and then that's, that's what you know then then the system quote-unquote wins or something because there has to be things that you you push stuff a little bit because sometimes you know it's like the swastikas you know i come from a jewish family i wasn't religious i wasn't bar mitzvah it's immigrant you know russian polish german people that came to new york city at the beginning of the last century and uh you know they definitely were very aware of that you know what was happening in germany and, and you know it was always in my mind that you know what happened with the Holocaust and Nazis, and it was, you know, something very, I mean, you, you felt anti-Semitism a lot, even in New York, and even when I was growing up, but um, I think, you know, the Sex Pistols came out, and they had, you know, swastikas or whatever, Malcolm McLaren, I guess, was Jewish, or, you know, it's like, but it was to get people's attention, and it was to, you know, kind of, this thing that was taboo, and we're going to put this out there. And I don't think, you know, it was kind of the message what I took was the opposite of fascism. It was like fighting against that. But sometimes you need to get people's attention and you need to break something to start up again. And powerful imagery helps with that, doesn't it? Because, it, as you say, it gets people's attention. It gets yeah. them paying attention. But you also get people to take it the wrong way. And then, you know, you had kids. That's why the Dead Kennedy song, Nazi Punks Fuck Off, is so important because... You know, there were people that thought, hey, um, you know, swastikas and beating people up and, you know, just and we're, you know, we're racist, anti-Semitic or whatever, Nazis. And I think uh, there were people that took it that way. It's like I think about when Born in the USA came out and I was uh, into punk rock then and my friends were like, screw this, Rambo, patriotic, you know, why are you into this? But I'd gotten into Bruce Springsteen around Nebraska where it was an acoustic record. I love mostly, that album. Yeah, yeah, just the lyrics were right Highway there. Highway Patrolman, you. man, is like a movie and a song, isn't it? Yeah, most, a lot of his songs are like these movies, but it was um, just, I was like, this guy has made a lot of money, he's successful, and he really understands like working class people. And a lot of people now will say, you know, why do you mix or say anything political, the state of the world that we're dealing with and what you guys are dealing with here and the Brexit and we got Trump and we got, you know, it's like, it's crazy times, so much terror and... I think that music and, and rock and roll and punk has always been very class conscious. It's always been a social thing. You walk out your door, it's a street music. You got to eat, you got to put some gas in your car, you got to get by. And I think there's always been a consciousness of, of class and division, whether it comes from in the blues and country music and through the Rolling Stones and the Clash and whatever, you know, Street Fighting Man. So I think it's been there. Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, of course. Um, and all the way through to hip hop. Yeah, and exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, it's there. And I think that um, it's just something. So, that, you know, I remember Jello Biafra to keep going back to him, but he's been a, a influence on me. And one of my instructors, just as a human being, as a kid, it was someone we looked up to. 
you know, he said, someone said, well, anarchy. And he said, yeah, anarchy. Every guy with the biggest pickup truck and gun is going to come out and play king of the neighborhood. I mean, the, the race, that you know, the human beings, we, we have to be more, you know, evolved to a certain point of understanding and respect. And, you know, I don't think we're there yet or near it, unfortunately. And um, some of the decisions that our countries make and our masses make, I think, have reflected where their minds are at and who they believe in and what how they think things can be solved. But uh, if we're not careful, we're just going to burn this planet up. And, you know, I know they've been, terrible things have happened for so many years and we're still surviving, but it seems uh, the price is, I don't know, time is ticking. So There's a lot of division right now, isn't there? There seems to me to be maybe more than ever. And is some of this what's inspired the new EP, Meet Me at the End of the World? Yeah, I mean, the title, definitely, it's like there's all this always, not maybe apocalyptic, but this doom and gloom. And obviously a lot of it, I believe, is, you know, scientific and real i mean what's happening with global warming our president trump doesn't you know he doesn't believe or acknowledge that but you know this <laughs> parts of antarctica icebergs are like falling off and you know things there it's scientifically proven but you know we also have businesses that are you know people want to run and, and obviously the corporations and all those powers that be make money off of war off of fear off of you know not paying we're not worrying about the price we're going to pay to the environment you know make the money now and stuff and uh that kind of greed but i think people are kind of not speaking out as much and i get it like it's like you know just like with the dickies thing like there's two sides you can have your opinion you could feel this way i can have mine and i have friends that supported and voted for trump but uh as it goes on i mean it just makes it feel like we're living in some i recently saw 1984 on broadway they did a remake of the play i'm not a big broadway guy but it was so relevant to like what's happening now. it's and crazy it's, how... and once the play ended everybody's yeah. had their head in the cell phone and you know looking into their phones and they got us tracked and you know a lot of the fear i think is set up so they can get away i mean the government is able to take away a lot of our liberties based on fear that you know they're, they're preventing these awful things that that have happened and and do happen that the media is uh, propagating as well yeah. right? i mean the other song is fox news funk but meet me at the end of the world is also about surviving about the, the new the song on that ep about living each day to the fullest like it could be your last you know um you know terrible things do happen but also life can be great you can create your own world you can have great friends and family and you can give love and get love back and i think you know that's always the message i have uh, kind of taken uh, the pma thing from the bad brains and put that on my guitar and a couple of t-shirts and you know kind of preach that you know life is attitude you wake up in the morning it's like what can we make happen and and i think us respecting each other and respecting the planet is important so that kind of pma or love or anarchy or whatever you want to call it that kind of good communal energy starts in in your circle you know my mom used to say show me who your friends are I'll show you who you are you know it's like surround yourself with some good people and and treat each other good and, and try to do the best you know something do something with your time i mean i'm just a singer and do this but every person i think needs an outlet and it should be an artist or have something that they do that is meditative or creative or some kind of release because just going to work and coming home exhausted and eating poison food that gets you sick and it just becomes a vicious circle uh fox news funk has a very radio clash vibe for me i loved it it's a great uh, tune great tune thank you well yeah that clash are one of my favorite bands and you know i wrote that with Derek cruz the guitar player and he started working on the riff as we were driving around we were on tour in america and i was listening to the news and reading that usa today paper that was coming under the motel door every day and um, you know, reading on your phone and just all this, you know, 
media manipulation and, and the whole Trump thing, it just felt like it was all just this connected propaganda. And um, I don't know, even even when you listen to whatever, the more liberal news or CNN or whatever, you just know that there's you know such money behind it. You're not going to get the full truth and how much the media can, you know, really affect how people feel, how they vote, how, you know, that's what they're listening to. It's And it's such a, um, a hypnotic thing that cannot always work in the best way. So Fox News Funk came out of that just driving around. We were touring with Alejandro, looking out the window of the van. He's working on the riff. I'm writing stuff in a notebook. Got back to New York and, you know, merged it together with this melody I had. And then we kind of want to work it up a little bit, Mag 7 Clash or Radio Clash. But but our own spin on it. You yeah, know, of course. Me, yeah, yeah. I, you know... I have a lot of different influences, and they're wacky, and sometimes, sometimes they're obvious, and then sometimes there's other things that. Um, I was listening to your covers record on the way here, and uh, the Paul Simon one, fantastic. Oh, that's a fun amazing! Song. It's song. a fast song, yeah. Me and Julio down by the school. So good. It's very Queens, New York. What did you think about in the '80s when he was attacked for the Graceland record and sort of going in there and working with South African musicians? And because a lot of people, I guess Bruce included, sort of called him out for that, didn't they? And they sort of said, "That's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that." And, yeah. Maybe in his own way, he was highlighting what was going on there. Yeah, it's a kind of a weird one for me to comment on. I and mean, it's such a pop record as well, isn't it? it? Yeah, and in some ways, he's embracing you know new sounds culturally and bringing it on. But it was at a time when you know it seemed like that you know you're supporting the wrong thing and sending the wrong message out to what we're fighting against. Um, you know, I, I guess Paul Simon. I've never really looked to as a writer and as a pop writer or as a lyricist there's some great stuff but as an activist um, I never looked to him to be somebody that was going to uh, be someone I would you know follow yeah, whatever yeah, in yeah. that way but I don't think everybody is that but it was a time where it was kind of a taboo thing and I think uh, he you know kind of ignored that you know really just did what he wanted to do and I think it was a creative decision I would imagine just on a he was excited, purely creative excited level, yeah. about this music but uh, it sends out a different message at a time that you know we were fighting apartheid you know it was definitely crossing a line so uh, can we go off topic very quickly when we did our first interview together and you taught me through your top 10 songs by the jam I've never in my life and I mean this sincerely heard someone dissect and celebrate music and talk about music in such a passionate informed way so i just want to ask you if you could maybe tell me about two of your favorite songs by the clash oh boy and 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 <laughs> what and, and what catching you off guard and why they're special and because i just like hearing you talk about music jesse <laughs> um all right well let me see with the clash well gates of the west would be one it was a b-side or not b-side was a bonus single i guess or an ep over here we got it as a seven inch inside the green record the first Clash album to come out in America was the second one that was their second album, Give Enough Rope. My favorite. Yeah. I love that Oh, really? Sandy yeah. Perlman, real yeah, rock yeah. production. But Gates of the West was in the green record, which we got second over there with a bonus single and bonus tracks. It's pretty neat. Um, just it's a song that, you know, the sound of that guitar kind of has like this Motown-y kind of riff, and it just kicks into action. And, and, you know, the idea of going from one port to another, from Camden Town Station to 44th and 8th, like being on this journey with a band, which to me, you know, when you tour, you're, it's like a pirate ship. You create this place with your buddies, and you go around the world, and, you know, you raise hell, enlighten people, run from things. Um, and it just was like this celebration of what, like, being a band is, but 
not being so corny, like we're an American band, we're going to party. You know, it was like this kind of outlaw running thing, but very detailed and, and exciting. And, and the two of them, you know, hearing Joe and Mick's voice, the way they blend together, even when they don't harmonize, just singing in unison at times and that rhythm section of Topper and, and uh, you know, and, and Paul Simonon. But also I feel like it's a kind of a bridge song to London Calling, like the Groovy Times, Gates of the West single. It's like they're getting a little bit away from the full-on power chords of like, you know, Jail Guitar Doors, Garage Land, Janie Jones, whatever, into something where the rhythm section, it's riding more on the rhythm of the drums and the bass and the melody, but still has anger and power. But uh, this city casts a shadow for the perfect crime. It's just a great line. And I think uh, when I, you know, come to places like London, I look around, I see, especially when I was younger and I first came here, like different city, oh, there's Waterloo Station, or at the Crown, which is in the song Stay Free. I was like, this is the bar, the Crown, that they're singing about in Stay Free. And then like a dumb American, I realized, oh, there's just a million crowns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, the yeah. Blarney Stone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, that one just kicks it out for me. Or, you know, like I was saying, Stay Free would be one of my favorites because it's just so honest, you know. Um, is that a Mick Jones one? Yeah, it's a yeah. Mick Jones one for his buddy that went to jail. I, we covered it on the record Outsiders. Um, I did it for a guitar player friend of mine, Johnny McNabb, who was in my band on the Fine Art of Self-Destruction tour. Uh, Johnny Rocket, Johnny McNabb, we, we lost him about two years ago. And his friends asked me to sing that at the memorial. And... Uh, you know, I had to figure a way to do it that was mine. So like the covers record, it's fun to just get your own take on a song. But it seemed like a song that was so personal to Mick about his buddy and his childhood and, you know, getting in trouble and a guy going to jail and him just missing because he had a guitar and focused on his music and took that road. Otherwise, it would have been him, you know, in prison. And uh, so... Um, you know, that, that mentioning the crown in it was, was kind of funny. But, I mean, I love the London Calling album. I love so much The Clash. But, all right, let's say um, somebody got murdered. Right. Somebody got love murdered. It. it was on Sandinista. And I bought Sandinista um, in 1981. I was 14 years old, I think. And um, I just recently uh, turned 50. Woo! Did you? You're looking but, great. Oh, mate. thanks. Yeah. Good for it. it was a couple of beers last night. It helps, you know. <laughs> keeps you uh, preserved. No, but Pickle. I mean, I started playing when I was 12, and I started, you know, listening to music at a young age. So when I was 14, I had already gotten into the clash when I was 11, 12, 13. And by the time I was 14, music was changing. And, um, whatever would be hardcore, the early roots of that. I had a band called Heart Attack, and then you know, hearing things like The Bad Brains, The Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Minor Threat, SOA, uh, Circle Jerks, it just changed everything. And we were part of this scene that was just opening up. And uh, so I wasn't open-minded, I guess, to things that weren't raw and, and exciting. I, I, you know, The Clash was starting to get funkier, and I wasn't uh, ready for that and so I got Sandinista and I was really disappointed at the time a few years later I realized after I smashed it when I was 14 did you actually smash yeah, it yeah we did amazing yeah. um, I rebought it in 1985 and realized they were right and I was wrong and that this punk rock attitude was about growth and change and ev evolving just like the Stones and the Beatles and all you know the great artists have done staying who you are but growing but to me at the time I was like oh they're playing disco and funk and you know we rode the trains with, with different people and it wasn't like today where people liked everything it's like if you were into it's tribal then right you fought if you were into hardcore and punk and where I grew up if you were into punk rock everybody hated you thought you killed your girlfriend you were a heron addict a homosexual whatever you know like I always say two out of three ain't bad but it it was wild and, and so that record came on, and it wasn't anything. We went with the needle because it was vinyl, you know, buying pretty exclusively then. And the only song that had raw guitars was Police on My Back. 
but somebody got murdered. I stopped with that. And years later, you know, being one, always a lyric listener, I was like, this is like a movie, each verse. It's like some old noir film, you know, and, um, you know, this, this robbery, you know, that that happens. You don't know the details. Someone lights a cigarette while riding in a car. Some old guy takes a swig and passes back the jar. But where were they last night? No one can remember. Somebody got murdered, you know. And the last line, uh, it really gets me. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's touching for The Clash, which they don't always get that emotional corny, you know. And it isn't corny, but they, they, they're pretty tough a lot. Maybe Mick Jones would stay free. Gets, I'd say romantic, sentimental. But there's a sentiment in uh, somebody got murdered. His name cannot be found. A small print on the pavement. They'll scrub it, a small stain on the pavement. They'll scrub it off the ground as the daily crowd disperses. Disperses. No one says that much. Somebody got murdered, and it left me with a touch. And the way the band then comes up from, they kind of come down, and they start to lift. It's just like three verses, and it tells a whole story, you know, like a film or a book or something. And it's a great song. And to hear the two of them singing on it as well. Um, but there's a haunting thing about it, and there's like this message of like, you know what? people are gone like we we wreck each other like we got to love each other like life is you know it's a temporary state we should respect it at least that's what i got amen the babbling brook here um when did you first meet the band did you get to know all of them when they were still the clash or did you meet joe i went to like a queue to see them when i was a kid i went to the palladium um there was a a theater on there used to be the academy of music uh, which wasn't around for that but they recorded the famous lou reed live uh rock and roll animal at this this theater and it was a rundown theater and i first started going to concerts going to those big concerts like kiss and aerosmith and being up in the nosebleeds we didn't have money to get down to the front and you'd watch and maybe borrow someone's binoculars and in your mind you'd make up what the show looked like and you'd go to one show and you'd talk about it for a year and like you know uh, people talk to me and go like hey how do you remember like everything they played and what went on and I'm like yeah because we only went to a couple shows and, and really we just like and talked and me and the guys in, right? would just go like yeah they open with this and you know and, and uh, not that you know men and women there, there's differences and of course there's Women are a certain way, and men are a certain way, and you can't stereotype. But guys, a lot of guys, like it's like a Barry Levinson film, like Diner or something, like, you know, it's like baseball, the statistics, you know, how many army, you know, how many hits, how many home runs, what's on the back of a baseball card? And we used to look at these records and look at, like, who produced it, who wrote it, who they thank, where was it recorded? Unless it was like a Zeppelin record with no information, it was just like a feather and a couple loops or whatever, a couple circles. But, um, you know, we'd go to shows, and then I found out, wow, you know, you can go to a smaller theater. When I got into the Ramones and the Clash and Cheap Trick, they were playing these little theaters and uh i saw cheap trick on monday fantastic oh yeah robin so can still sing so good Amen. they're all great um but yeah so we'd go down to palladium and i realized the back door if you just hung out there you could maybe sneak in and uh, i snuck into the ramones on new year's eve uh 79 80 when i was a kid i got busted when i got home I was grounded for a month but it was worth but it totally uh, worth it yeah, yeah yeah they showed rock and roll high school the film and then um you know it's saw acdc open up for ufo when i was 12 and With it was bomb with Bond, and it was $6.50, and I was scared because I never saw anybody barefoot in bell-bottoms with tattoos and Which no shirt on, right? and that voice, and I was frightened, but they were so good, and I left when UFO came on because they had keyboards. I was so open-minded, and I was an Elton John fan, but I just didn't think that was rock. So um, the Palladium was this cool place, and I went out back, and I had met the Ramones, and you know they were really nice, and I went down there to see The Clash, and it was... Uh, 
London Calling and um, just come out. It was March. I think Lee Dorsey was on the bill who sang Yeah, Yeah. And I think uh, who else opened? There was somebody else, the B-Girls from Canada, a power pop uh, group of gals. And I was out in the back area, and there's this little kid in front of me. I didn't realize he was my age, in plaid bondage pants and spiky hair and some creepers. And I'm standing there waiting for the clash. And they come, and they said hello to me and the other guy. And then they took this kid who was in front of me, and they just took him right in. I got like a hello, got to meet them, but, you know, as a fan. And then a little bit later, I realized who this kid was. His name was Harley Flanagan. He was in the Stimulators, and I followed this band, which led me into like, oh, wow, you could be, we were both 12 years old. You could be 12 years old and play in clubs in New York then. And so that was the catalyst for me getting heart attack out of Queens, making that phone call from the payphone at junior high school to do the audition at CBGB's on a Monday night, and which would eventually lead to us playing as a, an all 13-year-old, 12-year-old band. And, uh, yeah, I, I met Clash briefly then, and then the book came out, The Clash Before and After, and there's a photo of that kid, Harley Flanagan, sitting with them from that day. But I didn't know, you know, he was a drummer playing Maxes in this in this cool band. So, um, but in time, I guess I would meet those guys more through uh, the Degeneration days, a band I would do in the late, the mid-late 90s. And uh, Joe Strummer came out to one of our events, and we were DJing, and then he came to a show. Mick Jones came to one of our gigs, and uh, we... We had become friends with the photographer, Bob Gruen, who's not only a great guy, but he shot like all our favorite photos and our favorite bands. He was and, there yesterday, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, and our favorite magazines. And Bob, you know, I, I don't know, the word got out. I think Mick came on his own to a club called Danceteria, and then Joe came to Coney Island High. And then we met these guys, and, and especially Joe back then, you know, he, um, it was before, you know, the Clash uh, film was made, West Way to the World. It was before, or maybe not before that, but it was before his solo career got relaunched. He was in a quieter period, I think creatively but coming out he would just hang out and and talk and drink with you and you bring up a song you know jail guitar door whatever you bring up a movie a scorsese movie and have a story but anything you asked him about any of the songs or any of that he was open and sitting there and i'm sure a million people had asked those questions and drank the tequilas with him but he was with you till four or five in the morning and uh and giving so much and i thought wow he's doing this for me and my friends but i realized you know, in time from hearing from other friends around the country that he would do this in other cities, just hang with people and give whatever they wanted. And that uh, was, it was really cool. And Mick, I got to know a little bit more. I hung with him after Joe passed here um, at a place called the Groucho Club. And yeah, yeah. he was telling me some great stories about when they first came to America. And I actually went to the Groucho Club on this date and couldn't get into the club. And this gal got me in. I was on a date with her and I, I kind of liked her, but Mick Jones walked in with Paul Simonon and Julian uh, Temple and, uh, Lucinda, uh, Joe's wife, and and uh, hadn't seen these people, and Joe had just passed, and Mick just started to talk and tell me stories, and I had to listen. He's like my Keith Richards, you know. It's like the Clash and the Ramones are like my Beatles and Stones, and uh, the girl got disgusted and walked out, and he just kept telling me great stories, and uh, I tried to call her again, and she never took my calls. <laughs> but again, worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about a typical night out with Joe. Was there any that really sprang to mind? As, As uh, Bob Gruen and his wife would say, you better bring your sunglasses. Um, you know, just take over places. We once went up to Boston because the Mighty Mighty Bostones were playing. Love and they band. were getting a star on the sidewalk by Tower Records, a record chain in the States you guys probably know. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and Joe came in. They wanted him to, you know, induct them into this walk of fame. 
And so that was cool, and that was special. And then we went out, and we were staying at the same hotel, and we needed somewhere to go. We took over some uh, VFW hall or something. that was They were not ready for the amount of booze that was going to be drank. And he started DJing and pulling out these records, and next thing you know, we're all dancing on the bar and dancing on tables and, like, till 6, 7 in the morning, like, took over this place. And there were many nights like that, you know, where you close a place or a place that you wouldn't think would be, like, a real obvious rock and roll spot, find a way to get the boombox in there or hook up a DJ or call somebody to go home and grab their records and make the party go. And um, But, yeah, a guy that would just sit and talk to you and tell you, yeah, I hated that Tom Waits show last night. And like, really? And, you know, or, yeah, this is great or this is rubbish or, you know, whatever. With the, did you guys watch Mean Streets? Did you guys get into all those movies that we loved? He goes, oh, yeah, we used to call Keith Levine Johnny Boy. He had a hat like that. And um, there was just something, you know, very real and very funny. And, and he, his dressing rooms would look like um, with the Mescaleros, like that scene in the Marx Brothers movie with, you know, a bazillion people. Like, come on in. We got room on the ceiling. And he just got off stage. And the guy's, like, got no shirt on. And he's sweaty. And he's got his clothes and his you know, set list and his smokes and his spliff and and, uh, and he's just there with everybody, just uh, taking all that in, giving so much. Um, Mick Jones said to me, you know, that he followed Mott the Hoople around and that um, when he was a kid and the way they treated him, they, were, they embraced him and let him come in backstage and they put him on the list. He'd take trains around. He said that's a lot of where he um, learned, you know, how to treat the Clash fans and, and be so good to them. And... Uh, and you had that yeah. same lesson from them, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's important, you know, the people that are coming to your shows and, and are supporting what you do and, and giving you that freedom to be an artist and not have to work a day job, but also, uh, you know, that, that put time and money. And, and, and you know, also if, when I've met people who have been, a, you know, let down, you could still love their music, but it can be uh, can be depressing, too, if somebody's a jerk, you know. You'd rather not meet them. I'm, I'm sure it's probably more like that with actors and stuff. There's a lot of actors and films that I've liked and maybe I'm better off not knowing the people and just watching the film for the it's the art of the artist you know the message that it has you were in bringing out the dead right yeah that was uh, how did that come around part. I don't know you know sometimes you just say things to the universe I know it's corny I was like I want to be in a movie I said to my girlfriend and next thing you know I got a call and it wasn't just a movie it was like a Scorsese movie um, maybe a, not a really the, different one for him maybe as well. not the best one I don't know it's kind of like after hours meets taxi driver but the soundtrack's great great clash and Johnny Thunders and great reggae on it he always has great music but to work with uh, Scorsese for two days I had one line it was still like you know, all day just asking him questions. And I just wanted to talk to him about, you know, films. But he, he liked talking about rock and roll. He's a real rock and roll fan. It was with Nicolas Cage. And, uh, yeah, I think it was in 99 or 2000. But uh, What's Nick Cage like? Um, Larger than life? He was okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's all. Ving Rhames <laughs> was really nice. And there was another kid, Harper Simon, uh, that I know he's a musician, uh, Paul Simon's son, actually. And, uh, and he was cool and funny. We, there were some people on that set. I mean, it wasn't a big stretch for me acting-wise because uh, I played the club doorman. My line was, right this way. My father still thinks it's walk this way. <laughs> he likes to tease me. You know Matt Dillon a bit, right? I've hung with him a bit, yeah, in New York. He used to come around to hardcore shows like CB's at the matinees at CBGB's and come see groups like the Dickies and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I've hung with Matt, um, just talked music a lot. You know, he's come to see us play. And he's a really underrated actor, I think. He's, he's really cool, but he's a real listener. I mean, his collection of Latin music and Cuban stuff and rock and roll. And I've hung out with him, I guess, at, at like Joe Strummer gigs and stuff and, and Mescalero stuff. But he loves to talk music. It's interesting. I was saying this the other day, and maybe I said this on the air on that radio show I did, but it's 
really very, very rare, almost none. I can only think of one during these long rides I have looking out windows in vehicles traveling of a credible actor that has become a respectable musician that's made credible, real, you know, vital art, rock and roll records, let's say, um, you know, where there's a lot of actors we could name that have done this, including Johnny Depp, who's really cool, but like made great records. And I, I can only think of one out of all the time that was a actor, then gone to music and did good stuff. It was Ricky Nelson. Maybe someone else has some other ideas. I guess it's a matter of taste. <laughs> you know, I was on a label with Russell Crowe. He was, uh, well, I was on putting out my first couple solo records. He was on our, he was a label mate. Kiefer Sutherland was just over here doing oh, yeah. a country tour. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, was that uh, English actress? She did a good version of Hungry Heart. She's pretty good. Uh, Mini Driver, is that Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know we've spoke about it before, but I'd like to have it on this podcast for people to um, hear. The memorial for... The Joe Strummer. Okay, yeah. Or the mural. Well, mural. mural. I can never say mural. that Mural, yeah, it's mural. Well... That that's funny because uh, it's still there and, and people come, you know, we get like a hundred photos a day or whatever. I opened this bar with a little bit of not a lot of money, but you know, just with a couple musician friends. Uh, I wanted to have a little corner spot, like some kind of Frank Sinatra fantasy of like, all right, when I'm not on tour, what do I want to do? I want to listen to good music, talk about good music, drink, talk to people, talk to girls, hang out with my friends. So this. Frank Sinatra kind of fantasy came as this bar Niagara, which happened to be on 7th Street and Avenue A. And I was hesitant to take that location, but my friend that would become the business partner, Johnny T, plays drums uh, with Ryan Adams a lot. He's on the new record, actually, Prisoner. And uh, he said, yeah, don't worry. I was like, why don't you want it, Jess? And I said, well, that was the A7 Club. And I grew up in that building, you know, from when I was 13, you know, playing in Heart Attack. And Beastie Boys had played there in Bad Brains and Black Flag. 
and this was this special place. And then it became King Tut's Wawa Hut, not the one in Glasgow. They had the name first, and it was like a hairband rock place. And I worked the door there when I was like. So the New York one had the name first? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, in the 80s. And then, Schooling. Then after that, it was Wally's Midtown, and it was just a dead zone named after some guy. And the idea that. Houston Street was zero. 7th Street would be Midtown because 14th Street was Uptown because nobody went above 14th Street in those days if you were an East Village kind of downtown artist or whatever. It was a nut job. And, um, yeah, so I was like, I don't know. And meanwhile, it's on the park. It's a nice corner. It wasn't a bad deal at the time financially at all. So he talked me into it. He's like, we'll burn some sage and, you know, we'll get some Rastas and rabbis and... And, uh, and he was right. You know, we took it and we went in there. And, you know, whenever I travel, I always want to go out to a bar after a show if I have time, hear a DJ, talk to some folks, you know, just get a flavor of a town or even before sound checks, walk around a city. Um, you know, I don't want to read about it on my phone or somebody's Snapchat. I want to, like, live a city out. And I love that, the unknown. And I like bars as much as I've seen alcohol ruin a lot of good people. I do believe that there's a place for it if you can handle it. In the dark, there's some kind. Of, it's like a church for me, or some kind of place to go. And um, and it's communal. You get a lot of information about a town going into a bar. So we opened Niagara, and because when I would travel, I'd get you know hooked up in different places. Oh, you could drink free, you know drink free here. So we had a policy: if you were a touring artist, come to Niagara and drink free and bring your road crew and. DJ and do whatever and that that led to you know a lot of bands stopping there as one of the stops and before the city got even more gentrified and some legendary nights I'll imagine yeah a lot of stuff and so I'd go on tour I'd come back when I didn't have a record deal I would just say I'm gonna DJ here and Joe Strummer came there a couple times. He came uh, after the first Mescalero show at Irving Plaza, and he came and he brought, you know, you know, a few hundred people followed him. And Shane McGowan was there, and all these. It was just wild. It was one of those really great nights. And he came a couple of times, but I was away on tour, and he filmed something there for MTV, some show that they were doing. Uh, I forget the name. And, and so people kind of somehow connected that place with him. And when he passed away, the fans are so, you know, love this man. It was such a shock right around Christmas time. Was it a real shock? No one saw that coming. Yeah, and I kind of found out for someone that called somebody in L.A. at the Cat and Whistle, this, this uh, pub in L.A., Shane McGowan had called somebody. I don't know. It was, it was wild right around Christmas. You know, you thought this guy you know, is, is going to go on. He's so much soul and so much spirit. And yeah, it was, it was a hard knock, you know, and, and just at seeing him, I, I'd been out with him, I guess in November, I was going on tour at Ryan Adams and we went to this place called the Cedar Tavern, this old beatnik uh, kind of uh, Ginsburg Kerouac bar on university towards the West Village. And I wanted Ryan to meet Joe. And there's a bunch of photos of that night. Bob Groom was there and Josh Chuse, who I'll get to. And um, we just hung, and it was just, and that would be the last time I'd see him. He passed, you know, in December, 20, December 22nd, so I think, or something like that. And so um, when he passed away, fans and people that loved him just started putting flowers and candles right on the side wall, this brick wall outside of Niagara. And tons of them just kept going, and, you know, people needed somewhere to, to show their love and, and to give their, you know, condolences. And keep his spirit. So that was that. And um, 
A little time had passed, and Josh Chuse, who was a friend of Joe's, did the cover of Earthquake Weather and many Mescaleros records and did every Jesse Mallon and D-Generation album cover for a while. Uh, he was working at Sony, but more of a freelance art guy. and did some great videos and you know, road-managed Big Audio Dynamite. Really super cool guy. He, uh, and he had to make a video for the next single, which was going to be Redemption Song. It's a cover of the Bob Marley song. Joe does a great take on it. And you got to do a video with, with a dead person. And, and, you know, what are you going to do? Well, in that neighborhood, traditionally in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and still um, the Latino community, or, you know, a lot of Puerto Rican people, would, when they're, someone in their family or someone they loved would pass, uh, a couple artists, only maybe one or two, would do a rattle can spray paint uh, mural of somebody. And a guy named Chico and a few others would do it. And it would have a, a caricature of them and the years they lived. And it would be on a big wall. And it was just a beautiful way to celebrate their life. And uh, so I had, he had this idea, like, let's take the side of the building and let's get Dr. Revolt and this other guy, Zephyr, two great graffiti artists and uh, friends, and have them start at four in the morning and paint, you know, the side where everybody put the flowers and paint this thing of Joe. And he'll film that, and then people can come during the day and put flowers down. We'll have boom boxes, and we'll just celebrate in a street fate, you know, street kind of carnival, memorial, street funeral for Joe. And that would be the video. So I start filming it, and Jim Jarmish came by, and I came by and put some flowers, and the guys in Rancid, Steve Buscemi, um, you know, I, I forget Spike Lee's uh, brother. Uh, I forget what his name is, Sinky Lee. I think, I don't know. It was a bunch of people that knew Joe all came by, um, Josh and his wife, Caroline, Seymour, and, um, and people on the street and fans and friends. It just became this thing as the song played. So they filmed the video, and the idea was that's it. You know, this is for the video. I figured, you know, this mural. And then somebody said, why don't you just keep it up? Or, you know, we just decided, like, this looks kind of cool. It didn't look like Joe exactly. It was a caricature, a little bit like Marcy, a little bit like Mr. Magoo, but it had a sense of humor, and it said the future is unwritten, know your rights, and it's still there. It was just a very cartoon version of Joe. And we left it up, and we didn't know that people, you know, what would happen in time and the tattoos that I've seen and, uh, um, you know, every day if I walk by that neighborhood or, or from around that bar, you know, sometimes I am. Is it still photos, yours? Still photos, yeah, I'm yeah, still yeah. involved in yeah. it. But, you know, it's set up so it runs as, you know, someone that manages. Yeah. And me and my partners, you know, do such other things. But it was a, a smart move to do 20 years ago. <laughs> it's 20 this year, actually. Is it really? 97, yeah. I opened Wicked. it. Uh, I was on the Nimrod tour at Green Day. Funny enough, Green That's Day again. my favorite again. Green Day album. I love it. Oh, yeah, I like yeah, Scattered so a lot. I so love good. that song. But, uh, yeah, so, and, and I guess... Uh, that's the story, long story. How did you meet Green Day, first of all? Because that's a long-standing relationship, right? You and Billy are close. and Yeah, all those guys. You know, I was on tour with D-Generation. We played with Social D, Social Distortion. And we were in uh, the Bay Area, I think San Francisco. And, uh, you know, Green Day was just blowing up then. And I liked them. I'd seen them, you know, I'd had Dookie and um, a, a few records that I'd had, the, the earlier ones on Lookout. And uh, I'd gone to see them play Open for Bad Religion. My buddy Joe Sip, who owns Side One Dummy Records, is a singer in a band called Wax and 22 Jacks. And he actually does really good uh, stand-up. But he said, you got to go see this new band. And we went, and they were opening for Bad Religion at the Hollywood Palladium. I happened to be in California. So I saw them. I knew of them. I was a fan. And then they came up to me. Billy was the one who approached me at the gig after we played with Social D. And he started asking me about lyrics and songs, and I could tell he was a listener and a thinker, and, and uh, he was asking about a song. The, the first thing we talked about was a song I didn't write, uh, Capital Offender, that Richard Backus had written, and it's, it's a great 
lyric, I think, and uh, I'm proud to sing it. It's on the D-Generation record, No Lunch. So we talked about that and then moved on to a couple of other D-Generation songs. And that was it. And then at some point, uh, we got a call from our manager or agent. We're going to want to go on tour with them. So we started out west. And the first night, we were kind of like, what's this going to be? Because D-Generation didn't fit into any perfect slot. We weren't like the new punk. We weren't glam. We weren't this. We weren't rock. It was like kind of a mix of like a hardcore band meets like a glitter band and a New York train wreck. But there was something really fun and special for us doing that band. We, we loved each other. We were excited to play. And but out of major cities, you know, we'd get hit with chains and bottles, and it wasn't always uh, wasn't always like you know as perfect as it looks back now when you read about things. So we went out. We'd know what it was going to be. First gig was in Denver, I think, and the first night we're playing, and suddenly the pit starts to go off. But one guy is getting the pit going. I'm like, who's this guy down there? It's getting everybody going, and he's going nuts. Turns out it's their drummer, Trey Cool. I'm like, wow, that's <laughs> wild. This guy's got to play a set. And he just like moshed to our whole, like, you know, 45 minute set. And then I met Mike and started talking about, you know, music with him and then Billy. And as that tour went on, we had such a good time with them that I'd never been over the sea, over the ocean. You know, they asked, well, the last day was at the Fillmore in, in uh, San Francisco. They said, we got to ask you. And they all got together and asked our band. The three of them stood there and said, you want to come to Europe with us? So it was my first time coming over here. I think we did the Brixton Academy like three nights. The Astoria went all over, you know, um, Ljubljana and Sylvania and, um, you know, Sweden and, and Italy and Germany and you know, Ireland. It was great. And we just kind of stayed in touch and, you know, found out Billy's a big replacements fan and just talking music, you know, and, and keeping that. But they're really good people. And they were like, you know, these guys had made a lot of money, but they were very generous. Their door was always open. Come in our dressing room, play on our guitars, eat our food, drink our booze. And they just, uh, you know, loved the experience. And they were really wild on stage and would make trouble. And our band was, you know, we're just having a lot of fun, too. Our crew was a cool bunch, and everybody just kind of got along. So we, we did those two tours. And then after that, when my band ended, um, you know, I, I would play out west when I tour with new projects at a band called Bellevue before I went solo. And they would come to the shows, or when I'd play solo gigs, you know, Billy and Mike would come out, or Trey, and stuff like that. So we just stayed in touch. And then eventually, I, on one of my records I made for their label, Adeline, um, which, glitter, which album glitter, in the gutter. glitter in the gutter, yeah. And was uh, that the one Rob produced? Uh, Rob Casciano, yeah, 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 yeah. He's in Volbeat. I know that's a really strange connection. Obviously, yeah, Anthrax he was in Anthrax. Well. So yeah. You're good buddies, right? I've interviewed. He did him the before. demos. Yeah, Rob's great guy, and you know he did the the song we did with Bruce, and he was great with that, and great his uh, his attitude, his energy. He's real talented and funny as fuck. But uh, he hey, posted Rob some picture on Instagram a few days ago. Was, I'll try and find it at the end of this show. Oh, yeah. The funniest fucking things I've ever seen. Yeah, he's very funny, <laughs> but really, you know, really talented. A little different. It was made in California record. It was like more of a pop record. Some people love that one more than others. Um, I have some soft spots for a lot of the songs on there and uh, the experience working with Rob and then working with Bruce and whatever. But those guys treated us really good when we were on Adeline, when I was on Adeline. And then uh, a little bit of time after, you know, we just stayed in touch and done some shows. We made a fun band called the Rodeo Queens one night. Oh, you're actually in a band with those guys, well, right? It was a drunken jam. We're, we're working right, right. on the B-side still, but <laughs> 7 in the morning we went to a studio and, uh, you know, whoever could stand up, we were trying to finish the song, and it's called Depression Times. It's been played a lot. You can find it out there, but the actual single few years later we're working up to b-side but they're from rodeo california i'm from queens new york so billy had this idea rodeo queens love it you know but uh yeah i was listening to a song of yours on the way over here solitaire one of the saddest songs i've ever heard jesse yeah could you put us in the mindset of that one 
Yeah, that was written for my friend Kelly Keller. You know, most of these songs are about people, or sometimes it's a couple people, or sometimes it's about myself and I'm disguising it. But that was really about a friend who um, was from Louisiana, New Orleans area. She put on shows down in in that part of the world, in, in the South, and, and she loved rock music and was very well-read and just a fun, fun person. And uh, she... Um, Ended up coming to New York and working at a club called Coney Island High that I was involved in, and she booked Alex Chilton, and she had Ryan Adams opening there, playing for Tommy Stinson, and playing, um, you know, and Ray Davies, and all these these cool things going on. Uh, Andre Williams, she just had such an energy, and, and I remember she was really fed up on relationships and really down on, you know, just uh, I don't need to be with anybody. You know, I'm just I got my cigarettes. I'm just gonna I got my music. I, this was like a real statement, you know seems strong but it also has had like a sadness to maybe just saying you know i'm closing the door but you know and i guess it it, it struck a chord i never realized this till years later but that sonic reducer was one of my favorite songs as a teen you know i don't need anyone being the first line that that would repeat in solitaire i've never really said that but it just came to mind recently and we did lose kelly a little bit after that um it was a few years later that she would pass in new orleans um you know just a bad bad thing with some drugs and i don't think it was uh, i don't think it was an accident but it was really uh terrible because her heart was just she just was a person that gave so much to musicians and to rock music and loved it so much and and knew the, the good stuff and and had a, a spirit but um yeah the song was just about something she had said and going into that mind when you don't um want to deal with any other people and the dramas and the the pain and you'd rather just keep things kind of simple and keep that lock tight you know so. it's a beautiful song yeah. really good where do you um stand jesse on relationships and marriage? have you ever been married i've never been married um and i don't have any children that i'm aware of you know i've produced some records but i don't know if i've produced anything else now um i believe in love and you know i i think there's a real great bond with people you know i've had some great girlfriends and i definitely uh you know love children and you know as much as uh, i've been around for a while i still feel like there's there's more to do and see so i don't know what the plans are but i definitely uh I think it's something that is another thing I can't imagine. I come from a broken home, so it's a little nerve-wracking for me. Like, I don't want to mess it up. Like, my parents, you know, they, they were good people, but, like, they just couldn't deal with each other. And it, like, me and my sister kind of went through a lot of crazy stuff early on, and we're still figuring that out. But, um, you know, everybody's got something. And so many people at the time I was growing up were coming from broken homes. I think it added to some of the energy and whatever, angst and... Uh, anger or whatever sadness that you can channel into music you know but um maybe someday kids and maybe marriage i don't know you know but i definitely uh i'm a romantic but i also like somehow a freedom as well it's a combination of things but um you know i think having a good person in your life that you're good to and is good to you is, is something that uh everybody can benefit from it must be hard right being, no broken dishes <laughs> being in this sort no of game plays. that you're in it must be hard to exist and commit fully to being a touring traveling working musician and then to also keep that family life and that stability 
at yeah. home as well. What did Chuck Berry say in that right? movie? Hell, hell, rock and roll, keep the home fires burning. But yeah, I mean, it, it's you can stay in touch a lot more. When we were touring in the '90s and the '80s, you were that guy like in the bathroom while everyone was trying to sleep, you know, whispering into the phone or under a comforter with the cable there, or freezing at a payphone down in some sketchy parking lot at with two a massive in the morning. Stack of coins. Yeah, or one of these bodega <laughs> phone cards. You know, you can be a lot more in touch. You know, between email and you know, FaceTime and ass time and whatever, you know. But, I mean, there's good things about that. Some of this technology, even though it's killed a lot of the mystery and romance and, um, you know, people having to show up in person and look each other in the eyes, it's actually, there's some good things about, you know, you're not just out there. But, you know, it used to be what happened on the road, stayed on the road. Now what happens on the road can be on the Internet for some people, you know. And there's a, there's a, a definite connection, but sometimes it's... It can be oversaturating and just, you know, distracting. So do you have a good relationship with your sister? You mentioned her briefly then. Um, yeah, I you do. I mean, yeah, together. Did me that my sister, my mom passed away when I was in my, I guess, late teens. And my sister was in her early teens. And she was a single mom. And she died at 43, you know, from, from cancer, uh, breast cancer. And it was, it was a five-year lead-up. I had been living in the city previous to that. You know, um, I left Queens to be in Manhattan and do my music. And I lived in my rehearsal studio and crashed at my friend's dorms and um, wanted to be downtown Manhattan because you could be free-thinking. And uh, it was cheap then to create and have a space. And, uh, you know, there were cool clubs and movie theaters and I was vegetarian. All these things weren't really working out, going to school in a mainstream uh, middle-class borough. So um, at that point, I was in the city doing the band Heart Attack, touring a lot, putting out records and EPs, independent records. And my mom got sick, and uh, it was a shock, and it was really upsetting. But it was during the five years, you know, I had to move home and kind of help out, take care of her, and it got worse and worse. And and then uh, when she passed, you know, I was living back home and just took care of my sister because, you know, now three years, four years, it's like not a big difference. But then when somebody's, you know, that young and it's in their formative years, you know, it hits hard. So then we had to figure out where we're going to live and all that stuff, you know. It was something I didn't know about Clem listening to his interview that he had lost his mom at a young age, too. That was, um, yeah, you know, we know each other. We talk music and stuff here and there, but that was interesting. And my dad had been, you know, they we had gotten divorced, you know, when I was like six or something. So he had been living somewhere else and whatever. So we figured it out, you know. Like I was saying, everybody's got a story, and it comes from, you know, life is it's beautiful things that sometimes are not perfect but surprise you. And then there's the things that are that are tough, and you you got to get through them and stuff. So music always helps, and uh, people, you know, the message in songs or films or books or even in people talking to you that, that it's okay that other people have been through some of these things and they've lived and it's okay to, to feel and, and go through it and that maybe you'll be okay, that there's there's something that's going to take care of you, whatever that is, spirit or something or just uh, a community or a song. You know. I think when you go through stuff, you're more empathetic to other people's struggles and plight, right? And I think it gives you... A bigger heart, I think. Pain does make the heart grow. I think you if learn you take to it love the right more. Way, yeah, if you don't get too cynical, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to see other people that you know something that touched that hit really hard and in a in a tough spot for you. Yeah, you hopefully you can have that empathy. You know. Do you have a relationship with your dad now? Is he around? Um, yeah, he lives uh, in Florida. He actually voted for Trump. No. Um, but yeah, he uh, and I got closer over time and stuff, and I think he understood the music thing a lot more. You know, he was more of a straight guy that didn't uh, take as many chances and 
But he always, you know, he liked Elvis Presley. He was into Bruce Springsteen and Bob Seger and all that stuff way before I was. Um, but when D-Generation played Madison Square Garden with Kiss, which was a funny night, he came and, you know, it was like, because he kept saying, I was like, Dad, we sold out CBGBs, you know, three nights, four nights, we're doing great, you know. Yeah, I'll come see you when you play the Garden, you know. When we played the Garden, we opened, but he, he came, it was kind of like... That was, you know, for a lot of people, that was a measure of something. But uh, he kept saying, you got to join the post office and get a job with benefits and screw this stuff. And don't, you can't look like that. And But uh, I think he understands it's not going to change. It's not going to stop. And this is the path I'm on. This is what I need to do. You know, it's not uh, some fly-by-night trend or, you know, hobby. You're a lifer, right? Yeah, I don't know what else I would do. I thought about it, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's that easy to rob banks anymore. So. Can we finish on that kiss story? I feel like that's a good point to, uh, to oh, wrap yeah, up. I could that, talk to you all day. We should do another one of these in like six months to a year or something, <laughs> okay. a part two at some time. But let's end it on that night at Madison Square Garden with Kiss. Well, when I first got into music, you know, I mean, maybe early on, Elton John jumping up and down on the bed to the Crocodile Rock. You know, I mean, my cousin would gauge a record by if we could jump really fast up and down on the bed and make everybody upset or just try to hit the ceiling. Johnny Be Good, we heard that in the American Graffiti. The the 70s were uh, a look at the 50s were being repeated, you know, Happy Days, American Graffiti, Lords of Flatbush, um, these rock and roll revivals that we couldn't go into. But, um, you know, I wanted a leather jacket like that. So I liked Fonzie and I liked Kung Fu. I was really kind of angry. My parents had split up and I wanted to see all these violent movies and Death Wish and Billy Jack and all the Bruce Lee stuff. And so uh, I was into that and fire and I, violent movies and I wanted to, you know, I had some babysitters and I wanted to know what it was like to be an adult and go into the city and sex and all this at age eight. So then I saw Kiss around age nine on the Paul Lynn Halloween special and it was fire and blood and black leather like the Fonz and, and so I got really into that. I bought rock and roll night and party every day and uh, a couple years later I had to move out to Jersey. Uh, we were doing that for a short stint at my dad's house and and um he had remarried and and so i ended up in this talent show doing the rock and roll night the kiss song and it seemed to go pretty good and i played my first electric guitar a year later i moved back to queens and we did it again at the, with different kids at the public school talent show and i spit ketchup i was gene simmons and we were obsessed with kiss we bought every magazine every record and they'd come around and you know luckily we get to see them once or twice from the again the mezzanine nosebleeds barely could see them figure out what they played talk about it for a year every magazine it was just like a way of life and other kids didn't get it they'd be like the older kids that like sabbath and zeppelin they'd be like kiss sucks kiss sucks and they'd want to beat us up and i guess at that age they just hit us at that point where we were like into kiss and um it geared me up for when we got into punk because when you got to punk everybody hated you but um that's another bit so um the Kiss thing, you know, was just obsessive. And I had a teacher. He said, let Kiss promote you. His name was Mr. Liss. Not Mr. Liss. Let Kiss. Like, you're not going to graduate. Give up the Kiss stuff. And uh, I probably would have cut off a finger to have met those guys or played with them or anything. And then time went on, and I kind of got into things like Cheap Trick and ACDC. And I would get beat up for wearing the ACDC badge because they thought I was saying I was bisexual. These are rock fans and Queens kids, you know, kids into Pink Floyd and all. And then I got into the Ramones, and they had the same leather jacket as Fonzie and Marlon Brando and the Lords of Flatbush. And they were from Queens and New York, like the Ramones. I mean, like Kiss, excuse me. And so I got into that. But the Kiss thing would always be 
something in the background. And when I got into hardcore, my girlfriend would make fun of me. You still get excited when Kiss puts out an album. And it was like in the closet. But then when Degeneration came around, you know, it was more of a rock thing as much as it had a punk edge. And uh, Kiss had done all these records that I didn't really like without the makeup and done, you know, different members in the band. Ace and Peter had left. It wasn't the original lineup. It, you know, it wasn't my childhood band. And a lot of the guys in D-Generation had the same Kiss experience, even though we didn't grow up in the same block, but in the same borough we did or same time period. So one day after our second record is coming out, uh, No Lunch, it was a, you know, a record signed with Columbia Records, Sony. Our manager sit us down in an Italian restaurant and say, you know, perfect kiss. We got these tour dates. And, and just we're like, what? And it's the re reunion tour. So they're only playing songs from 1977. It's Ace and Peter and, and the makeup and the stage set is from then. And you're going to open in all these mega joints, you know, the Toronto Sky Dome and, the, you know, whatever, Pittsburgh Arena Dome, Enorma Dome, and then we see Madison Square Garden. And for, you know, growing up in New York or even America, it's like the garden, like in, you know, Marlon Brando. It was my night, the garden, remember my night? And so uh, we looked at that, and we went on the road, and the garden show didn't come up in the city till about a week or so in. And we had seen the show a lot, and, you know, we'd been out on it. And, you know, you're playing early. It's not, you know, when you think about these things, you think, oh, it's going to be 15,000 people. But, you know, it's about 5,000 when you go on at 8 o'clock. And the Kiss show was weird. It was people that hadn't left the house in years because it's the reunion. It's like, i got to get some pants. Kiss is coming to town. And they were really nice to us. They each came into our dressing rooms individually. And by the time we got to New York, you know, we'd seen the show a lot. And we were just excited to, you know, to play. And I remember uh, Donald Trump, who was, you know, wasn't the president then. He had seats worse than our parents 20 rows back. And they were all <laughs> excited that he had, you know, worse seats. And because it was New York, as much as, much as Kiss was really nice with us, they kind of kicked us or the crew kicked us out of the dressing room. We'd been threatened three times of getting thrown off the tour. One for trashing, trashing a dressing room which was barely anything uh, for what we could have done. Uh, one for Gene Simmons thought we were cock-blocking him because if there was, like, two pretty <laughs> girls in the place, we'd be looking at them while Kiss was on. We'd go out in the crowd and try to talk to the girls, and he watches from the stage, and he points to people, and he has guys to go talk to the girls for him, and he was getting really pissed. By the end of the tour, they signed a big bass drum, and each guy wrote, like, a cool rock and roll autograph, and he wrote – to G-Generation, don't ever cock-block me again, Gene Simmons. <laughs> so we get to New York. This is the height of Giuliani time. He's the mayor of New York. He's trying to make it a Disney city, quality of life, all these crazy rules. We play. We played Irving Plaza the night before, one of my favorite venues, the next night where we kiss. And uh, they kick us out of the dressing room. So I'm going to go downtown to St. Mark's and celebrate. I just played the garden, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, I got a Rolling Rock beer in my hand. I'm not even under the streets. I'm, under the, I'm not even on the street. I'm under this pavilion. And I have my laminate, which has Kiss and me on it and, you know, my credentials, rock and roll tour credentials. <laughs> and uh, these cops roll up on me. Open container. What the hell are you doing? You're, and I, do you have ID? And I was like, look, it's just me. I, my, my laminate. I'm a New Yorker. I waited my whole life to play. I just played the garden. They didn't care. Locked me up two days in the tombs. You know, I got to play the garden, but like the whole weekend I was in, I have no record. I went to jail twice during Giuliani. One was for putting a poster up as well with Scotch tape. He was putting everybody through the system. The tombs are downtown below Canal Street, and they move you from one bullpen to the next. And you, because you go in on a weekend, you don't see the judge till Monday morning. So, uh, that was the big celebration, I got. But uh, that's a story, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a, a fun thing to to do, and uh, I seen those guys, the Kiss guys, years later, and they they remember everything. They're they're cool like that.
That's some cold shit on the cops' part, though, isn't it? They, yeah. could, they could have had some. I mean, yeah, they, they, everybody was going there. to jail then for silly things, you know, jaywalking, and you know, they closed down one club I was involved in, Coney Island High, for cabaret law for for dancing. We had to have signs up that said "No dancing," and I was like, "It's like Footloose or something." It was like telling somebody not to laugh, but it's based in these cabaret laws a hundred years previous that hadn't been enforced, that are based in jazz and based in racism, essentially. And they were coming around to make money for the city and quality of life and the nightlife. And, and they'd come in, and if people were dancing, they'd shut your joint. You know? Shut the place. Uh, Jesse, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed that. Thank I you, hope it was man. all right for you. Yeah, You're a real gentleman. With you. It was um, really fun. Brother there. And the EP's amazing. I love it. Is there going to be an album soon? What's, um, what's your plans for the material? This is for this summer, the Meet Me at the End of the World EP. But then uh, I've been writing and recording a bunch of stuff. It'll probably come out late this year or early next year. Always on it, aren't you? I love it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 